Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. This is an episode generated by questions from Skeppy, longtime listener and hobbyist, and I've had him on before, and he's asked some great questions, and I'm going to do a special episode just with him where we go back and forth on the more complicated questions. These are some of the easier ones that I'm going to just zip off pretty quickly. Thanks, Skeppy, for that, and thanks, sponsors, Tops, Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Comcy.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. First question, the theme song for the podcast, The Man in the House of Cards by Lost European. What was the story behind choosing it? My awesome wife picked it. <laughs> she just said, hey, try this one. And I was lost. I'd been looking for days. And I know if she didn't look for days, she just is very sharp and knew exactly what it was. And people seem to like it. Next question. What inspires or motivates me for new content? I'll never run out of topics because there's lots of different ways to hobby. And I don't really have to do anything. It's not when I'm dreaming or in the shower or taking a walk or playing with a dog or on the way to a card show. There's just stuff that comes up. There's so many interesting people. I've got lots of old friends and new friends. Also, Hobby Hotline is pretty easy because there's a lot of things that come up in that. And then I can dig a little deeper if I need to. Okay, next question. Has the standard for a great baseball hitter changed for the worse? I don't think so. What is a great baseball hitter now has changed because there's more tolerance for striking out. After all, if you strike out, you couldn't hit into a double play. Uh, and so it's just changed. I wouldn't say it's for the worse. They're learning a different way. And the modern sabermetrics are really trying to get at winning. It's about not making outs and accumulating runs. A lot of strikeouts is not the end of the world if there's home runs to make up for it. As a purist, I don't like it as well, Skeppy, but the general manager's and the money ball people have figured out that a 240 hitter that hits a lot of home runs is better than a 300 hitter that hits singles, in their opinion. And they're stacking their teams that way. Next, how many raw copies are out there in relation to graded for any era of cards? And he has a list of whether it's vintage or pre-war, modern or brand new cards, especially the farther you get back. I think there's a lot more out there that are not graded than people realize. So that's my statement. I'm a little concerned when people just look at the pop report for older cards and think that is the population. I'm telling you, there's a lot more out there. Now, whether there's a lot more out there in better condition than the average card that's been graded, I'm not sure about that, but I know there's a lot more cards out there. Next, pack odds are an interesting stat to know, but they have little to do with actual scarcity or how rare a card is. I would not say that, uh, Skeppy. I would say pack odds are an important stat to know, but they do not tell the whole story because the configuration of some of the packs and the absorption of the packs, which you have gotten into, whether or not they sold out, whether or not they were retail or hobby, where they discarded. The pack odds are a very important part of it, but it's not the whole story. Okay, is there a more prominent place for president cards and American icons in the future of card collecting? I think yes. I think we're already seeing that. Anybody that's of interest, that's a celebrity that's on a card, whether it's their rookie card or an interesting card with game-used patches on there or anything that connects to the player or the celebrity, I think that's already happening. If you want to get ahead of the curve, find a prominent celebrity that has not been chased yet. Next question, are sports cards big enough to be regulated? Sadly, I do not think so. I think they will not be regulated. Now, that doesn't mean there couldn't be litigation when people do bad things. But for the government to step in and slap regulations on it, I don't see that happening. And I hope I'm right. <laughs> okay, next question. Tiffany Sets. 
and their misunderstood characteristics. Tiffany sets, especially from Topps in the late 80s, they were much better cardstock. They defined how many they printed in many cases, but they didn't serial number them. But they're great looking cards. They're not a parallel in the sense of being in a pack, but they are parallel to the set in terms of the same card numbering. It is a separate set, in many cases a box set, and in that sense it's a contrived collectible that still has value, but it's a lot more money than the same card that you could have gotten in a pack. And frankly, the other thing that comes up with Tiffany sets is their condition, I won't say condition insensitive, but you frequently could find them in mint because they came in a box. They were not opened and played with. Next question, how can a card be referred to as base when it's the only card of that player in a set with no parallels? I agree, that's a misnomer. If you have a base set that has a lot of parallels and you have a base set that has no parallels, I just think the hobby has uh, moving toward that, Skeppy. I uh, understand the distinction, but think we're not going to get anywhere with that. It's just a base card. Is that better than a common card? I don't know. Base is more fitting, obviously, with respect to parallels and other things, that this is the base version that has no serial numbering. Although there are some base cards that, frankly, in the base set that do have serial numbering. Do flippers really understand margin? And what Skeppy is getting at is the value of time, that if you buy something for 50 bucks and you sell it for 100, did you make $50? Cash on cash, you made $50, but if you drove somewhere to pick it up or if you spent some time organizing it or putting supplies together, the profit margin is probably less, your net margin not just your gross margin, is probably a lot less than what you think. On the other hand, the new way I've been thinking about this is that not only is the time spent not a negative, it actually can be a positive for some people. They're enjoying, they're going to go to the show. They're not counting that as gas money to get to the show. They're going to spend time at the show. They're not going to see that as a bad thing. They're going to see that as a positive thing. The fact that flippers don't really fully understand margin skeppy is not slowing them down at all. If you're buying one card, and you're flipping one card, that's a different kind of labor and time. You actually get some bragging rights for owning the card or flipping the card. Now, if you bought a collection and a whole bunch of cards and you doubled your money on it, but you had to spend a lot of organizing it, that's another story. Next, how do I leverage negativity or criticism and turn it into positive motivation? I think in my career, I didn't worry about that a lot. I really tried to listen to it. I definitely want specific criticism, not general. If they say, I think that is wrong, then I can see if I agree with them or not. And that's the motivation is I want to be accurate. I want to do the right thing. So if somebody's got criticism and it's correct, I want to thank them for that. Next, how do secondary prices influence players and culture or anybody that signs autographs to sign more of their autographs or to sign less perhaps. If they don't want to sign autographs, they could raise their price. But sometimes as we know in the hobby, that doesn't cause people to think, I don't want the autograph. I think I do want the autograph because it costs more. And as far as limiting how many they sign, I don't know if many people have signed a lot of autographs, but if you've got to sign your name 50 times, then that doesn't feel so good on the 40 on the third one or the 10th one or the 49th or 50th one. On the other hand, when you're getting paid, it depends on what they want to do with the money. You'd think they have enough money. They shouldn't even have to charge, but there's no blanket answer for that, Skeppy, but thanks for the question. Next, what NFL era of quarterbacks have been more fun to watch, the 80s and 90s or these last years? It's not a fair question <laughs> because I think it's more fun to watch right now. You can watch the replays or videos 
or films of the older players, and they're great, and it's terrific. But the new standard is right now, and some of these young quarterbacks are fabulous. It's more fun to watch something where you don't know what the outcome is, and you don't know how well Josh Allen or Patrick Mahomes, how well they're going to develop over the next five or ten years. When was the real golden era of baseball cards? Was it the 50s or 60s or 80s, 90s, or is it happening now? The golden era for investing in cards, for reaping <laughs> the investing or making money on cards is right now. The golden era for buying cards was in the 50s because uh, cards were a lot cheaper. And the 60s and the 70s, every decade they got a little bit more expensive. But that allowed it to be a golden era for selling cards now. For trading, I think the golden era for trading was clearly in the 70s and 80s before Cards got to be so expensive. Of course, my dad would say the golden era of baseball cards was in the 30s with the Gowdies. Next question, how do you prepare for your guests? I don't do a lot of structure. I will jot down some notes of somebody, whether I do know them or don't know them, I may have a couple things, especially if I'm doing dueling questions. Most of them, I think a little bit ahead on that, but I like to be more spontaneous and natural. So I prepare, but not overly prepared. The next one is silence in a card deal. When negotiating a deal for cards, how can letting uncomfortable silence work to your advantage? Skeppy, you're onto something, but we're going to blow it here by deals don't get done if both parties are silent. But frequently, the person that can maintain their silence for the longest winds up winning because then the other party has to negotiate against himself or herself. <laughs> if you say, would you take 10? And the person is silent, then you go, well, would you take 11, you're arguing against yourself. On the other hand, if you're completely silent, then it's no fun. So in negotiation, yes, being silent can work for your advantage as long as you're not being rude. What is rare to me? What personal metrics or experience do I use to determine rarity? Just in the last few months, I've realized when Rich and I went to the Nationals, we determined rarity if we hadn't seen it before. I've been to every National and hundreds of other shows, maybe a thousand other shows. I don't know how many shows I've been to, but a lot of local card shops. If I haven't seen it, it's probably pretty rare. And now you could say, well, what about some common card in an obscure set? It's still a rare set. But if I haven't seen a card of a certain player, within reason, I used to try to pick those things up, especially when the prices were a lot lower. Okay. Sharing sensitive information to the public. Can sharing sensitive information about fakes or alterations in a broad public setting be more harmful than helpful? No. I think it can be more helpful than harmful. That does not mean to say it's not harmful, that it would spook a public that wants to think that everything is great. They need to have a buyer beware mindset. And yes, some harm, but more help. I applaud Ryan Nolan in his Spotting Fakes book. That's a step in the right direction. There are other things out there too. Okay, market insulation and outs in downtimes. What additional steps or ways of thinking can business owners take to position themselves to be more prepared in the difficult times? Business owners need to be not overextended. I played golf with the son of a friend, and he is the guy that I was going to interview a year ago about NFTs because my buddy told me his late 30s son was really into NFTs. So I finally played golf with him, got a chance to catch up. And I said, hey, what happened there? He said, I am so glad how I insulated myself is that when I got all these NFTs, I immediately took profit enough to make my basis in the remaining NFTs zero. So in other words, he got all his money back. And so now he's got these NFTs that he didn't sell that have dramatically dropped in value. So that's what he did. Not a business owner, but he was trying to make money. And so in other words, he cannot lose now 
but if he'd have let everything ride, he would have lost. Custom-made cards, again, I think that's a good thing. Skeppy wants to know if that in any way would deplete the population of common cards being destroyed. There's too many common cards. You could destroy a million of them, and it would not even affect anything. So I'm here on custom-made cards. It's a really great thing. Uh, pitchers in the hobby, why are pitchers so overlooked in baseball today? They're not overlooked. They're just not valued as high as sluggers. But if you look at historically, the great pitchers were always worth a lot more than a common player. They still are. It's just that the five-tool hitters, the superstar power hitters, the Aaron Judge right now, is so much above the pitchers. So it's not that the pitchers are overlooked. It's just they're overlooked compared to the sluggers. Okay. Skeppy says he travels often and wonders why there aren't sports card shops in airports. They're gift shops. They're not necessarily to pick up something for yourself, although you can. If there were a kiosk there, it's something fanatics could do through a part of lids. Could there be a pop-up? Could there be a push cart that's lockable and it would be theft-proof? Could there be a vending machine? Yes, all those things are possible. And I'm hoping that as fanatics gets more entrenched in our industry, they experiment with some of those things. Lastly, he says, if you only have one card, one copy of something, does that make it appreciate you more versus having multiples? Now, I, my episode with Adam Gray, I was realizing in the PWCC Iconic 100, several of those cards, I have more than one. I can assure you when you have more than one of a great card, it's not chopped liver. <laughs> you feel double great if you've got two really fabulous cards. As I said, I kept cards that I thought would be good trade bait, trade material. And so no, Skeppy, when you have two of a great card, you appreciate them just as much. And if there comes a time you want something else and you trade it, then you could trade it for something else that's great. So thanks, Skeppy. Thanks, listeners. Some great questions there. And I'll be back in a couple of days with another episode.